So, so I have found this weird irony at work in my life that anytime I decide that I, that I like, I need to eat healthier, I want to start eating healthier, I kind of want to get back on track to getting in shape, like the day I decide that I'm going to eat healthier, somebody shows up at the office with cookies or brownies. Like it never fails that on that day, there is temptation. Several weeks ago, I was at Jack Stack. Um, and I decided that morning, you know, I'm going to try to eat healthy. Why I would go to Jack Stack after I decided I was going to eat healthy, I'm not sure. But I went to Jack Stack and I ordered a salad. Not bad, but it's not the purpose of the restaurant. Um, and they, they kind of messed it up. You know, they, they brought the wrong thing. So by the time they brought it out, it was late. Danielle had already finished her meal. So to apologize for bringing me a salad um, really, really late, they didn't offer to pay for my salad, but instead they offered me a free the free dessert, because that's what they do. And there's a dessert at Jack Stack that I think is from heaven. It's the carrot cake, and it's got this icing on it, and it's unbelievable. So I knew, I woke up thinking, you know, I really want to eat healthy, but when God rewarded one salad with the dessert, I was like, you know, I can't turn this down. Um, so when they ask, you know, like, sir, do you, like, you want us to bring two spoons? I was like, no, one will be fine. Um, Danielle can have her own if she wants one. Uh, but I have found in my life, every time I have good intentions to do something um, I face an immediate temptation to do something else. And that's where we're at in the book of Nehemiah today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to the book of Nehemiah. We've been here now for four weeks studying the life of this man who returned to his hometown to build up a broken city, the city of Jerusalem. And we've been learning a lot about getting ready to rebuild something that's broken. By the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 2, good intentions have turned to good decisions but the resistance is now coming. We've learned from Nehemiah that we don't want to settle for broken. When everyone else settles for a broken life, we rebuild if we follow Jesus. We've learned that it's okay not to be okay. And maybe you're in here today and there's an area of your life that's not okay. I want you to know that's okay. I met a man at the end of our 10 a.m. service, marched forward, his first time here, introduced himself to me, and I said, hey man, how, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? He handed me his Alcoholics Anonymous book and said, I need help. I let him know it's okay not to be okay, but God doesn't want to leave you that, babe. We, I, I think we can help you. We've learned from Nehemiah that you've got to lean on others. Serious rebuilding is never done alone. We've learned from Nehemiah that you have to, when things get broken, you've got to learn how to take inventory without blaming other people. Just learn what's broken without placing blame. We've learned that if you're really going to rebuild broken spiritually, you've got to learn how to talk to God. A vertical relationship has to develop where we say, God... I can't really figure this one out on my own. We've learned, up at, we've learned at some time you've got to stand up and speak truth. While everyone is saying, I feel like this might be a problem, somebody who wants to rebuild says, no, this is a problem. My marriage doesn't feel broken. My marriage is broken. I don't think my kids are going on the right path. They're on the wrong path. Um, I don't think I might be emotionally unhealthy. I'm emotionally unhealthy. We just stand up and speak truth. And then we realize that God in our past, God in the past, God's presence in the world is proof that he's going to be there in the future and he can help us. Nehemiah's convinced his people of this. They're ready now to rebuild, but the minute they say, let's go, resistance comes. We're in Nehemiah 2. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20 this morning. 17 and 18 are going to be from last week's study, and then we'll roll into the resistance. Nehemiah's just finished surveying Jerusalem, walking around the walls, figuring out what needs to be rebuilt, and now the process begins. He says, so I said to them, they are the Jews, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come and let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. 
but. You circle that word. Man, don't you hate when but steps into a good story? Don't you hate when but shows up on a good day um, and just reroutes everything but? When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to his historic right to it. As soon as Nehemiah and the people said, let's go, resistance came. But it had been building. Remember verse 10 that I skipped a few weeks ago that I told you I'd come back to? As soon as Nehemiah thought about rebuilding, people thought about resisting. In Nehemiah 2, uh, 2.10, it says, when Sambalat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite official even heard about rebuilding, they were very much disturbed that someone would come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We have come to the point in the book of Nehemiah and in his rebuilding process where Nehemiah's spiritual dream kind of gets a jolt of reality through resistance. And here's what you need to learn about any good thing you pursue in life, especially a broken thing that you attempt to rebuild. Every dream for our life eventually gets a dose of reality through resistance. It's actually how we get strong enough to finish what God has called us to do. But every dream for our life eventually gets a dose of reality through resistance. It's why married people feel bad for newly married people because they have experienced the reality of resistance a little bit. I mean, we look at newly married people, for those of us who've been married for a while, and we even have a name for their non-reality season that they're living. We call it a phase. We look at newly married people who haven't met the reality of resistance. We say, oh, they're just in the, what phase is it? They're just in the honeymoon phase. Can you remember your honeymoon? When you go on a honeymoon, you don't even think. Danielle and I got, got married really young. I was 21. She was 19. Our parents paid to send us to Jamaica for our honeymoon and just kind of said, have fun, be safe. So we went to Jamaica and the first night we went and took a walk on the beach because that's what newly married couples do. They take a walk on the beach. It's romantic. And there's this little guy down there who's doing paintings on the beach who looked like maybe he hadn't showered in uh, a decade or so. And he was hanging out, had really these long dreads. He may have been smoking an illegal substance in Kansas and Missouri. Um, and, you know, we walked down and Daniel's like, wouldn't it be so romantic if we, if we bought a painting to remember our honeymoon forever. And I was like, all right. So we go up to the guy and we're like, hey, how, how much? And he says, $40. So I gave him $40. He says, it's not done yet. Um, can I bring it to your room tomorrow? And we're like, yeah, that's fine. So we gave him our room number at our resort and went back and began to feel a little uncomfortable about the decisions that we made. So I remember we called our dads and we were like, hey, here's what happened and I remember them saying, wait a minute, you give you gave money to somebody on the beach um, without getting anything in return? Like, yeah, but he's going he's gonna to bring it to our room. They said, wait a minute, you told someone in a foreign country what room you were staying in at this resort that doesn't like have really any security? And we're like, yeah, said, what were you thinking? Well, we weren't thinking because we're in love and we're on our honeymoon and we haven't met the reality of resistance yet. I ended up going back to him that night. I lied to him, said our room had a problem. We changed room numbers, but they hadn't told me which one it was yet. And I bought the painting and took it home. It's in my basement and we survived the trip. Um, but it was a, a great memory of realizing the honeymoon phase lasts for a little bit. Well, the honeymoon phase for Nehemiah is over. The honeymoon phase for this project is over because it gets hit with resistance. And not just in Nehemiah, every one of us who's trying to rebuild anything, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a relationship, 
whether it's a, a, a business that we run, um, whether it's our health or our physical health, anytime we try to rebuild anything, but especially spiritually, we face resistance. And there's two areas of resistance we learn about in Nehemiah chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. We're going to read a bunch today, um, kind of flipping in and out, that you need to be aware of. Because if God's called you to rebuild and you have a dream, you need to know resistance is coming and it's coming in, in these areas. Number one, you're going to feel the resistance of sin. You're going to feel the resistance of sin. Now, when it comes to learning biblical principles, so what do you mean by that? Like biblical truths rather than just biblical stories. When you're trying to learn how spiritual things work, you have to do a little more digging than just reading a book of the Bible. So we're reading in the history of Nehemiah that there was spiritual opposition to what God had called Nehemiah to do. We would say, well, why is that? Why would somebody come against what God wanted? And we would then go search the rest of spiritual history to look for resistance to spiritual progress to see what we could learn. So from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, what can we learn about spiritual resistance that might apply specifically to us? And in Genesis 4, we find a pretty good answer. We find really the first time God speaks to spiritual resistance in the life of people, and it's through two brothers that we meet. Their names are Cain and Abel. They're trying to figure out their own life spiritually, and one of them um, gets it wrong, and God teaches him a lesson about spiritual resistance. You don't have to turn to it. It'll be on the screen, but listen to Genesis 4, 3 through 7. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils, an offering to the Lord. His brother Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Everyone from Cain to Nehemiah to me to you when we want to step forward into spiritual progress, every one of us is going to be met with the resistance of sin, crouching at the door of spiritual progress, resisting us trying to go through it. The question we want to ask is, well, how do, how do we get over it? How do we find it? How do we know it? Where will we feel the resistance of sin? Sin is a massive theological topic. I could teach on it every Sunday for the rest of the world and probably not do it justice. So I'm going to try to simplify it into a word today. Sin is defined in the New Testament verse of Romans 3.23 as missing the mark. It's what sin is, missing the mark. Romans 3.23 says it this way. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest scholars and teachers of his day, says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin there in Romans 3.23 is the picture of a target with a bullseye. If you've ever done archery, if you've ever shot a gun at something that has a bullseye, if you've ever thrown darts, the, the word that Paul used for sin was missing the mark. For all, he said, God has this perfect bullseye of a plan for our life, and all of us miss what God's perfect plan would be. That's what sin is. Anything short of who God would want us to be, anything short of how God would want us to live, the Bible calls sin. You say, well, where will we feel the resistance of that sin? Three places. First, you'll feel it in you. Like in your own heart, in your own desires, in your own life, you personally will sometimes resist to what God's trying to do in your life. Romans 5.12 says that we were born with sin in our DNA. It's the exact same word in Romans 5.12 that it was in Romans 3.23, which means this. Paul said, when you were born, the trajectory of your life from the moment you came out of the womb is taking you on a course to miss 
God's perfect plan for your life. If there's not a redirect somewhere, you are born missing who God wants you to be. And James 1 says we see this in our desires that live inside of us, that fight against who God wants us to be, and that pull us away from the things God would want us to do. It's very simple. You and I were born broken. You and I were born with sinful desires on the inside of our life, and I'm not completely sure why it's such a big deal to admit this, and then from there to move forward. I want to challenge you to never excuse or try to explain why you're falling short of God's plan for your life and for your spirit with the phrase, that's just the way I was born. Because you were born broken. It's a really bad excuse. Using the phrase, that's just how I was born, is like admitting, I just would like to stay broken and never reach the design of God for my life for the rest of my life, emotionally, in your addictions, in your habits, in your personality. Don't say that's just the way I was born, because the way you were born was broken, and God wants to put you on a path to fix that by his design. Let me give you maybe another illustration of that. How many of you use an iPhone? Raise your hand, like you you use an iPhone. How many of you still use the, the iPhone 1? as your current phone. Why? You say, well, there's a, there's a better one now. The iPhone 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, they're better. They do more. They're more useful. Um, they've kind of fixed some of the kinks and bugs in them. What you're saying is if there's a better model available, I want the better model. And listen to me. Our soul needs a much larger factory reset and system upgrade than any phone ever will. I promise you that. Don't ever settle for the current spiritual model of your life. Whatever version you're on, there's one that's still better as you push towards Jesus because when you see who Jesus is and what perfection looks like, you continue living towards him and trying to live in him. Who we are by birth and by nature misses the mark of God's target. It's called sin. But when you find Jesus and begin living towards him, you learn to try to overcome the resistance of the sin that lives in you. But there's more than that sin. Number two, there's a sin that lives around you. In Ephesians 6.12, we're told that the things happening that erode culture are the fault of sin. It's the fault of living in a world that isn't the way that God intended it to be. Listen, whatever happens in America the next five years is not the fault of the Democrats or the Republicans or the Independents or the Soviets or the WikiLeaks. It's the fault of sin. Ephesians 6 says, look at the broken world around you and realize the the brokenness is sin. Manifest itself in people. But it's sin. Sin is around you. And number three, sin is among you. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. There's gonna be people around your life who are gonna resist who God wants you to be spiritually. We can sum it up with this phrase. You're gonna find the resistance of sin. If you're trying to rebuild, you're gonna find the resistance of sin trying to keep you from spiritual progress in the desires of your heart in the fabric of our culture, and in the relationships of your life. Say, man, it's everywhere. You're right. What am I going to do if sin is in me, around me, and among me? You got to be aware of it, and you got to push through. That's what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Nehemiah chapter 4, because we see sin present trying to stop spiritual progress. In Nehemiah 3, they go to work on the wall, and we read who builds what. That's as simple as Nehemiah 3 is. Hopefully, many of you read that last week, as I challenged you to read the entire book. In four, 
The wall's making some progress. It says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in, in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up and it would break down their wall of stones. They were like playground bullies. So Nehemiah prayed, hear us, our God, for we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. Nehemiah is saying, God, deal with them. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. And the people work with all their heart. But when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod heard that their repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said before they know it or see us, we're going to be right there among them and kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who live near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know, we learn from Nehemiah chapter 4 that rebuilding broken will take overcoming the tension between the sinful and the spiritual. Rebuilding broken takes overcoming the tension. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we read a, a bunch of things that could cause you to give up. And we read a couple of things worth fighting for. I want you to look at the screen of this chart that I had put together for Nehemiah chapter 4. What will cause you to give in and not reach your spiritual potential? What will cause you to quit the process that God has started in you to rebuild? When people doubt you spiritually or ridicule you and make fun of you, will you quit? Because that's what they tried to do to Nehemiah. When people get mad at some of the spiritual things that you're doing or they try to cause trouble for you, will that make you quit? Because that's what they tried to do to Nehemiah. If people threaten to harm you, your reputation or your friendships, or they threaten your job or they threaten your reputation and what people think about you, does that make you quit when people make threats about things? Will the fact that it's just hard to really get locked in spiritually and it causes fatigue sometimes to get moving spiritually, will that cause you to quit? Because in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see all these things that are trying to dissuade Nehemiah and the people from building. And we see Nehemiah in one sentence stand up and say, listen, I'm aware all those things and they're true. However, here's why we fight. We fight because of the Lord. He's worth it. We fight because our families are worth it. We fight because our kids are worth fighting for. We fight because our marriages are worth fighting for. We fight because our homes are worth fighting for. You see, Nehemiah and the people were aware of the troubled. But an awareness of trouble coupled with an active faith. I'm aware of the trouble, but I'm praying against it. I'm aware of the trouble, but I'm staying in God's word. I'm aware of the trouble, but I'm surrounding myself with the right people. An awareness of trouble coupled with an active faith stood against the resistance. And Nehemiah said, we're not going to quit. We heard back to back, they're going to come kill us. They told us they were going to come kill us. Our friends started telling us they were going to come kill us. And Nehemiah said, nope, enough. We're going to keep moving forward. We're, we're going to fight. You say, why, why are they going to fight? Because they've got a reason to fight. 
And I want you to know, if you plan to rebuild anything in your life spiritually, throw that chart back up there. You need to realize the left side of the chart is never going to go away. Anytime you put your hand to the plow of doing anything with significance, the left side of the chart is there. People are going to doubt you. People are going to make fun of you. Some people are going to get angry at you. Some people are going to try to cause trouble for you. Some people are going to try to harm your reputation or the things that you do. Some people are going to threaten you. It's going to be hard and it, and it will wear you out. The left side of the chart never goes away. But guess what? Neither does the right side. There's always a reason to keep fighting. There's always a reason to move forward. And you know what Nehemiah does so perfectly here? In case we forget that we're not just fighting for our families, but with our families, look at verse 13. It won't be on the screen, but I want you to look at what Nehemiah did after all the threats came. Nehemiah says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by what? I can't hear you. Posting them by what? Families. Nehemiah said, listen, as you stand in the wall of your brokenness, your whole family stands with you. You may not want to admit it. You may not want to express it. But your family stands in the wall of your brokenness with you. Your family experiences the same threats because of the gaps in your life that you do. Nehemiah said, I put them there with their families. And then, and then I told them, remember, this is who you're fighting for. This is the team that's worth fighting for and moving through the resistance for. And what happens when they push through the resistance? Look at verses 15 through 18. This is a great story that unfolds. Nehemiah said, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated, we all returned to the wall, each one to our own work. From that day on, half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Now listen, tucked into the last sentence of that last verse is one of the greatest spiritual truths that you could ever learn. But I have to show you one more resistance before I can tell you why that's so important. If we're going to rebuild, we have to understand we're going to face, number two, the resistance of relationships. We're going to face the resistance of relationships. The people who are in and around our life could make it difficult, if not impossible, to complete what God has told us to do spiritually. Flip over to Nehemiah chapter 6 and Nehemiah chapter 5. As they build the wall, Nehemiah says this is not just about the wall, but about the people it protects. And Nehemiah started serving the people inside the city. But in Nehemiah chapter 6, the wall is complete, yet we hear about people in the perimeter of his life who want to bring resistance. Nehemiah 6.1 says, When word came to Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I'd rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gate, Samballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come and let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and can't go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sam Ballot sent his aide to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. If you have a pen, underline the words unsealed letter. That means he posted it on Facebook. That means he responded in an open forum on Instagram or Twitter. It, it, an unsealed letter meant Everyone had already read it. That's what it meant. It was a threat to his reputation. A sealed letter was private. An unsealed letter basically was saying, listen, everyone already knows this about you. And what did the letter say? 
Verse 6, it's written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report is going to get back to the king, unsealed letter, right? We all know about it. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it won't be completed. But I prayed strength in my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're going to come kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I won't go. Then I realized that God had not sent him, but that he prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me. So I would commit a sin by doing this and then they'd give me a bad name to discredit me. You know, when it comes to the resistance of relationships, here's what we need to know. In life, you're going to have two kinds of people. The first group are people who make trouble for you. And most of them are easy to see. The Sambalats, the Tobias, the Geshems, we see them a mile away. As parents for our children, we see them a mile away. You know right now who, if you befriended as a best friend, you would never make it spiritually. Like most people who make trouble for you, you can see them a mile away. It's like that person is not good for my marriage. That person is not good for my health. This person is not good for my finances. You know, this person is not good for me having a positive spirit. We see most of the troublemakers. And there's people in life who are going to make trouble for you. Nehemiah shows us how to deal with these people. Don't even engage with them. He wouldn't go meet with them. He wouldn't talk to them. He wouldn't have a meeting with them. He wouldn't go to them. He wouldn't let them come to him. He just said, you're making trouble for me. You're not going to be a part of my life. But then there was Shemaiah. Who was Shemaiah? He was one of Nehemiah's friends. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem couldn't even have a meeting, but Shemaiah and Nehemiah had dinner together in a home. Shemaiah and Nehemiah were in each other's homes. They shared meals together. They probably had mutual friends. They probably appeared on the outside to have the same faith. They gave each other spiritual advice, which was why Nehemiah was leaning on him, saying, hey, I'm facing some trouble. What am I going to do? But he could not see that Shemaiah was in his life to make spiritual trouble for him, not spiritual progress. And I want to be honest, the Shemaiahs of our life, they're the ones who do the most long-term damage to us spiritually because they're so close to us. They're in tight relationship with us. They work their way to becoming advisors to us. And even when God is saying, go this way, when they whisper, maybe we should go that way, we think, well, I trust them, I know them, I love them. Of course I'll do that. Nehemiah was very rare in that he was able to kind of have a premonition of thinking, oh no, God did not send this person. And he realized he was in a group that made trouble. The Shemayas of the world will ruin you spiritually. And here's the scary thing. Most of them are unseen to us. We, we, we never recognize them until it's too late which is why you need the second type of person in your life, people who spot trouble for you. See, if I ask you to make a list of people who make trouble for you, you could do it. If I ask those of you who are parents to make a list of people who make trouble for your kids, you could do it. But if I said, give me a list of the people in your life who spot trouble for you, that's a harder question. Give me a list of people in your children's life that spot trouble for them. That's a harder question. But Nehemiah 4.18 kept ringing out in my head as I study it. Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, 
but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Who's the man who sounded the trumpet? He doesn't even have a name, but he has a role. You know who the man who sounded the trumpet was? Here was the one role of the man with the trumpet. Spot trouble before anyone else sees it coming and warn everyone else. That was his only job. He was in Nehemiah's life to spot trouble that Nehemiah did not see and to warn him ahead of time. So let me ask you, which one of your friends carries the trumpet? Which one of your friends is the person who you have tasked and you've said, I trust you and I'm going to let you into my life? When you see trouble that I am not aware of in any area of my life, blow the stupid horn and let me know. I might get mad for a minute, but I'm going to give you permission. You're going to see things that I don't see. So carry the trumpet and spot trouble for me. I know I can't do it alone. You know, all through this series, I've been given these practical little steps to try to help you slowly rebuild. And I've got some for this week. I've got three. But one of them could be a game changer for you spiritually for the rest of your life. I really, really believe that. One, this week, I want you to keep praying that restoration prayer and text message prayers that I've given you. Pray them every day. It'll take 20 seconds, maybe 15, to pray those prayers. If you say, where do I find those? You can go onto our app or you can go on our website under the first two sermons of this series. They're in there. You can write them down and pray those every day. That's you talking to God. You're beginning to get vertical in your rebuilding plan. God, I need your help. Secondly, you got to get in the word. Last week, I challenged you to read the book of Nehemiah. This week, I have a more specific challenge for you. I'm going to give you a 52-day Bible reading plan that'll take you through the life of Jesus and his church between now and Christmas. It's in your bulletin, and it looks like this. One chapter every day, starting November 1, ending two days, really one day before our first Christmas week service, that'll take you all the way through the life of Jesus and his church. 24 chapters of Luke and 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And I've given you three questions to ask yourself every day as you read, just to learn who Jesus is, to learn who you are, and learn what that gap is between the two of you so you can put that together a little bit. I want to challenge you to take this home and do it. That will, I've looked through the chapters I've asked you to read, your longest day will be no more than five minutes. Most of your days will be three minutes of reading if you read just at a normal pace. But then three, here's, here's the hard one, but the most important. I want to challenge you to find an accountability partner to take the 52-day journey with. I want to challenge you to let somebody in, into your life spiritually, to invite somebody into your life spiritually just to hold you accountable to read a couple minutes of the Bible a day. But here's why. Because I'm hoping by letting someone in that eventually you'll trust somebody enough to give them a trumpet and say, you're going to see things that I don't blow the horn when I'm in trouble. I trust you. I'll listen blow the horn when I'm in trouble. You know, if you're married, do it as a couple. If you've got kids, kids, do it with your mom and dad. You know, kids holding their parents accountable probably works better than parents holding their kids accountable. So kids, if you want to have some fun, hold your mom and dad accountable for the next 52 days to read their Bibles. That'll be fun for you. It'll be good for your whole family. If you're in a small group, take this challenge together as a small group. Hold each other accountable. If you're in one of our serve groups, do this with your serve group. Ask them every Sunday. I want you to ask me how I'm doing in my Bible reading. And maybe in this 52-day time frame, God will show you someone who can carry a trumpet on your behalf. You know, we said earlier early in our Bible study today that sin is in you, and it's around you, and it's among you. But you know what the Bible says about the Spirit of God if you're a Christian? 
It says the Spirit of God is in you, and it's around you, and it's among you. Which means every day there's tension and there's a battle going on between the Spirit of God and between the desires of sin. Every day there's a battle going on between the Spirit of God around you in the world and the spirit of sin that exists in the culture. Every day there's a battle going on between people in your life who want to drag you down spiritually and people in your life who can hold you up spiritually. The tension's going on every day and it's time for you to join the battle and push. Because I believe if you tap into the Spirit of God in you, around you, and among you, faithfully and consistently that you're going to grow, that you're going to rebuild. You know, I have a love-hate relationship with my yard. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I love, since the first time I pulled into a professional sports stadium and saw a field layout before me, I just, I love grass. I love green, freshly cut, thick yards. I just, I, I, I love a yard that is green and thick and striped and look good, but I, I hate paying the water bill to water it during the summer. So I've got a love-hate relationship with my yard. So here's the deal that I have made with my yard. If it can hold on till Memorial Day every year, I will turn my sprinklers on at Memorial Day, and I will sprinkle that yard through the dark days of summer, but on Labor Day, the sprinklers go off because I don't want to keep paying for water all fall long. That's the deal I've made with my yard. Get to Memorial Day, I'll get you to Labor Day, and then we'll just pray for fall to come. This year was great. Spring was cool. It was wet. My yard looked good all the way up till Memorial Day. I shut the sprinklers off on Labor Day, and I don't know if you remember, but September was hot, like too hot for a yard to not have water on it. And as the days turned into weeks and kind of got into the 1st of October, I let my dog out to use the bathroom, and like you could hear the grass like crunching under his feet. And the only green spots were where Rudy would use the bathroom in our backyard. Kept telling Daniel, I need fall to come. I need it to rain. I'd watch the weather and say, when's it going to rain? And then two weeks ago, as I walked by my dead, ugly yard every day, um, Danielle called me and she said, hey, the people who come and take care of our yard, they aerated it and... Um, and seeded it today, they said, you've got to water every day for the next 10 days, three times a day. And I said, what? Why why'd they do that? And she said, remember, I told you that they called and said, do you want this? And I said, yeah, remember, I told you we probably need that, but not this year because it costs a lot of money. And she's like, I guess I didn't hear that second part. So we had a spirited discussion about just communication in marriage and getting along better. But I thought, well, if they did it, we might as well make it work. So we turned our sprinklers on. And within five days, I walked outside and the yard was green, it was thick, and it was alive. And I thought, man, that didn't take much time at all. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me as I was looking at my grass the other day. He said, you got some Christians in your church right now. They feel dry. They're crusty. Might even look dead on the outside. But boy, if they just begin to feed their soul just for a little bit, it's going to come back fast. Man, if they just water their soul with the word of God, if they just water their soul with a little bit of prayer, just a few days of this, and their soul will spring back to life. So I want to challenge you. Feed your soul. Say, why do I have to do it for 52 days? That's a long time. Because of Nehemiah 6.15. After Nehemiah and his companions pushed through resistance and they kept building, here's what we read. That the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul. That's a Persian month. In 52 days. Nehemiah says, in 52 days of working as hard as we possibly could, our brokenness was rebuilt. And here's what I believe. I believe that by Christmas of this year, if you will choose not to settle, if you will speak the truth about the broken areas of your life, 
If you'll be aware of sin, but active spiritually, if you'll connect to a group or at least a person that will hold you accountable and you'll pray and read God's word daily, I believe you're broken will slowly begin to rebuild. I believe it with all my heart. And I pray you experience that. Can I pray for you right now?